expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. It's now just over five years since Typhoon Morakot hit Taiwan, creating one of the largest natural disasters in the island's history. Next month, the last of 44 new communities constructed for disaster victims is slated for completion. And the government agency that led the reconstruction last week declared its mission has been completed. However, critics charge that these new communities were made without consulting the very people expected to live in them, and those residents now face an uncertain future. On this Taiwan Talk, we're going to take a closer look at the reconstruction effort and what it's meant for those forced from their homes. But first, a little background. After three days of intense rain and wind, Typhoon Morakot claimed the lives of nearly 700 people and caused nearly $200 billion in damage. In the days following the disaster, the executive yuan budgeted 160,000 NT for disaster reconstruction and set up the Morakot Post-Disaster Reconstruction Council. John Hongyu is the chief secretary of the council. He says the main damage came after the typhoon's heavy rain led to flooding and mudslides. In three days, the accumulated rainfall is uh, almost uh, three meters high, and it affected 500,000 people, their victims in southern Taiwan. About three-quarters of those victims were members of Taiwan's aboriginal tribes, many of whom resided in the mountains. Secretary Zhang says while the government set to work clearing floodwaters and rebuilding dozens of damaged roads and bridges, it also faced a huge task, finding places to live for the disaster victims whose homes remained unsafe. The flood will come again, the rain season will come again, so we have to resettle in temporary housing for those victims. And after the law was rebuilt, those who, you know, their homeland was saved, they can go back to their houses. While the vast majority of flood victims were able to return home within a week or two, Zhang says many weren't so lucky. Around 20,000 people, they are affected by the mudslide, landslide, or the river flood erosion. So their homeland are no longer safe for them. The government created plans to relocate those people to safer locations, mostly at lower elevations. After five years, the government now says, thanks to partnerships with nonprofits and businesses, it's managed to create dozens of communities, including 3,500 permanent houses. Of course, this meant a lot of construction for schools and roads and other utilities. But Minister Zhang says a big task was providing for cultural needs. For example, for the church and for all the festivals, their original life uh, should have for like like that kind of activity. The central government and local government uh, cooperate with uh, the charity organization to provide the needs for all the victims. And then there's the issue of jobs. The move took many residents far away from the farms they used to work or other sources of income. Minister Zhang says in this case, private companies helped out a lot. For example, Foxconn Company in Taiwan, they provide a new farm, organic farm in uh, Kaohsiung's uh, Sandin Daai community. They provide all the infrastructure for a new farm, about 60 hectares, and they also provide 
mechanism to manage the, the farm for six years term. After six years term, they donate all the infrastructure to the local government, Kaohsiung City. But the reconstruction effort wasn't all from the outside in. Jack Hua is from the Baiwan tribe. He returned to Taiwan just two months before the disaster. Before that, he had spent nearly a decade studying abroad and earning a PhD in the UK in political marketing. I come back to Taiwan just two months before the Morak typhoon. Before I decide to come back to my village, I got a job in a university. But after the disaster, I realized my tribe, my, my village, made me to do something for them. So I decided to uh, quit the job and uh, come back to my village. His hometown, Taiwu Village, was among those relocated after the disaster. For our new life, we need an industry or an economical activity to support our new life there. Taiwu's residents had begun cultivating coffee in the years leading up to Morakot, but after the disaster, many wanted to give up on the industry. Hua, though, thought the tribe still had a lot to gain, so he decided to jump into the coffee business himself, selling under the brand name Kavalungan Coffee. At first, he says he planned only to focus on packaging and distribution. After several months, I realized good coffee needs to focus on how we grow it and how we produce it. So when we can pack a coffee and under our brand name, and we have to control the quality from the very beginning. He now oversees an operation that employs about 34 people and does everything from growing to processing to finally marketing and selling the beans in Taiwan and abroad. He says a large majority of his hometown's 500 residents grow coffee themselves, and his business is an extra source of income. We purchased coffee beans from farmers. Although we have our own coffee farm, but the quantity is still not enough for our Uh, So we purchased from our farmer. We used uh, a little bit higher than the market price to purchase the coffee beans. And we make them have the confidence to continue this business, this industry. And also our cooperation. If we have some profit for our cooperations, we will share the profit to our farmers. The operation has grown, and he says it now produces three tons of roasted coffee beans every year. Still quite a small amount compared to a foreign company. But we, we are growing, and uh, we try to integrate other production areas, like, uh, for example, Majia, Majia Township, and also the township just beside Taiwu Township. So we try to integrate Pindong indigenous peoples who are growing coffee trees and who are also doing this business. Even with the growing coffee industry, he says the local economy is still weak. But uh, it's become better. It's improving now. And I wish in the future, like three to five years, uh, we can double the income of our employees or the, double the, the amount of the people working for our cooperatives. Local industry has been slow to take off in other relocated communities as well, and many question whether or not these long-distance moves were necessary at all. I think when there's a disaster, escape is not the only way to solve them. 
That was Claire Chihui Huang. She's the director of the Millet Foundation of Indigenous Peoples, a nonprofit that advocates for the indigenous peoples of Taiwan. We should think more on how to mitigate the disaster or to prevent the disaster, not just to, to take the most easiest way just to relocate the peoples. For the government, though, they say one major lesson they learned from the disaster was that it had to do more to identify dangerous areas and prevent people from living there altogether. Here again is the chief secretary of the Morakot Post-Disaster Reconstruction Council, Zhang Han Yu. Prevention is better than rescue. Respect the nature. It's not a good idea to do many infrastructure and in conflict with the nature. But Director Huang points out that for the last several hundred years, whenever a major disaster struck the mountain residents, they were able to absorb the damage and rebuild without leaving their homes. She says the real problem isn't with the safety of the mountains, but with the government's standard of safety. I think there's a deep problem of cultural discrimination from the viewpoint of the urban peoples. For the urban peoples, uh, any inhabitants living in the mountain area are considered dangerous. Well, just like when we look at people who are living in Alaska or Sahara Deserts, we will also think it's very dangerous to, to live there. But if we really understand the cultures they have accumulated for thousand years, so we, we should respect their way to live in these mountain areas. They have their own way to build houses. They have their own way to cultivate the land. For his part, Minister Zhang emphasizes that the moves were voluntary. It's your choice, not the government forced you to apply. However, Director Huang says the only places the government provided new homes were in the plains and urban areas, far away from the mountains. It's just like an, another process of urbanization to, to live in these places. In fact, about 8,000 of the residents from areas the government determined to be too dangerous did decide to return to their mountain communities. I was most moved by the people who persist to stay in their villages. Director Huang says for the mountain areas, however, the government often didn't make much of an effort to reconstruct infrastructure, and now many roads remain broken and abandoned, possibly forever. And for the 12,000 who did make the move, overall, Wong says the government was just too rushed as it tackled this complicated process. Didn't do enough to learn about the needs of the residents. The result, she says, communities without what they need to continue their traditional way of living. One of the tribes called Arukai, they are claiming for that we really need some tombs. We have to stay with our ancestors together. But there's no place to put the ancestors. So they have to put their ancestors with the Han people. Nor, she says, were they given what they needed to thrive economically. When they were relocated to these areas, they are not provided uh, enough land to cultivate. For Huang, she wants to see more attention on how the government's policies have affected displaced residents. She says the housing projects, while they were massive, haven't been enough. The government has the responsibility to protect the multicultural environment of Taiwan. We locate the peoples and we, we give them some, maybe it's a, a safe house in the flat land. But how do they live in the future? They lose their identities. They lose their way of living. There's no, no land. So they become urban laborers. 
So is that the government want that? I don't think that all people in in Taiwan would like to see that. The government has acknowledged that jobs are still a problem in these new communities. The head of the Reconstruction Council recently said that there are still only employment opportunities for 50% of the workforce. But, says Secretary Zhang, Morakot was a huge disaster, and it's just not possible to go back to the life the victims once had. It's true for those who are affected, they have to face some change. How to accommodate to a new community is a challenge. It's a kind of choice. You have to face a new life or to live in your homeland, but uh, they have the potential, they have the possibility of the danger. The last of these new communities will be completed in about a month, and while much of the physical buildings and infrastructure is in place, for the residents who seek to maintain at least some of their former life, much of the most difficult work still lies ahead. That's it for today. Thank you for listening to Taiwan Talk, and do tune in next week. For ICRT, I'm Keith Manconi.